You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Morning, everyone. So today's reading is Hebrews 1, which is page 1201 in the Church Bibles. Uh, I'll just wait a minute for you to get there, because it took me a few minutes to get there myself, actually, so... In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thank you. Brilliant. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and uh, we pray that by your spirit uh, you will show us Jesus. Let me pray this in his good name. Amen. Amen. So here we are, um, turning to, to Hebrews. I don't know when the last time was that you, uh, that you studied Hebrews all the way from the start to, to the finish. Uh, we don't have time to give a complete sort of historical sort of context and background and authorship and so on. Uh, maybe there'll be an opportunity for you to tease that out a bit more in your home groups. If you're not plugged into one, I'd really recommend that you do. It's such a vital part of flourishing in, in our faith and in our community and our growth as a church. Uh, so there'll be an opportunity to, uh, to stew and to consider and explore a bit more uh, from Hebrews and more things like what's going on in the background. But let me give you a whistle-stop tour anyway. Uh, so Hebrews, as the name would suggest, was, uh, was written, or, or um, scholars seem to suggest, mainly towards uh, Jewish uh, people, thus the title uh, Hebrews. Its authorship is not known. Uh, so people, I guess, throughout the ages have tried to attribute that to, to Paul, but it probably wasn't with most of Paul's letters. He directly 
uh, writes into the narrative that it was him, with, and it's also, even if he didn't say it was Paul, he has a very familiar structure with how he writes his letters and salutations and conclusions and so on. Uh, some people have said that perhaps this is someone like Apollos, who we see mentioned in the scriptures in the New Testament, or perhaps Barnabas. I think Barnabas is perhaps a good fit. Uh, when you look at the, the letter uh, to Hebrews, there's a lot of reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which shows a real sort of good theological grounding and understanding that, a real good grip of the Old Testament. Uh, Barnabas was from the Levitical sort of line, so that maybe points towards him. But it's all, it's all speculation. No one can stand up and say they know for sure. All we know is it wasn't Paul, and that it is enough in that we don't know, because it's not about the author, it's about who he is pointing to, and who he's pointing to is Jesus. And so for the uh, title for our series, it is Jesus, that's who we're focusing on here, not the author, we're focusing on Jesus, and the subtitle, if you like, is The Greater Than. So if you want to summarise the letter to Hebrews, it's pointing out that Jesus is the greater than, and it's pointing out all the various different things that he is better than. Jesus is the top of the pile, he is the Son of God, he is the King of glory, the Lord of lords, and he is the one who deserves our worship some other background information for you if you like. It seems that what the writer is seeking to do is to, to communicate to some people who are beginning to drift in their faith, right? Uh, so they're beginning to drift in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've been returning back to some of their, their old ways, some of the old patterns, namely Judaism. So he's writing to, uh, to uh, probably to converted Jews who have become Christians, but he's noticing that some of them are starting to, to gravitate back to their old, uh, their old ways, hanging on to the old covenant, the old pattern of things. And again, uh, for us to consider, maybe uh, you find yourself coming into church this morning and you recognize in yourself, as we all have the propensity to do, uh, as the famous hymn writer said, uh, to, to wander away like sheep. We're all like that. We all go through seasons where we, we wander and we gravitate away because that's our, our, the natural inclination of our flesh. But maybe as you find yourself uh, coming to the beginning of Hebrews, you recognize that in yourself uh, that maybe you've wandered a bit, you've gravitated away, you've maybe, as, as, as Jesus says in Revelation, lost your first love. And so the book, uh, the letter of Hebrews is, is also for, for you this morning. Let's take encouragement from it because it's a wonderfully pastoral letter. It's not uh, someone barking orders at people, telling them how bad they are, how rotten they are, and how bad they should feel. It's pastorally uh, calling people to not forget that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than the allure of this world and the attraction of everything around us. Jesus is better. He is far superior. So these particular uh, Jewish people, um, that's the reason why it's called Hebrews again, they are Jewish people, they become Christians, they're beginning to think that their previous religion was better, the previous ways, uh, so they're thinking of things such as, and assuming it's written before the destruction of the temple, uh, that they're starting to, to think or, or they're starting to miss the manner in which they went to worship in this beautiful ornate temple, okay, uh, made uh, by the great architect King, King Herod, who was known for a lot of bad things, but he was also uh, a fabulous builder. 
uh, unparalleled in many ways. He built some awesome structures and he built this, this temple and there was something beautiful about it aesthetically that was pleasing for the people to, to go to and be a part of. And it wasn't just the fact that it was recently built by, by Herod, but it was the historical attachment to it as well. They were thinking, our ancestors have been coming to this place here in Jerusalem. The Jews have been worshipping there for far longer than anyone else. Okay, Despite what uh, modern uh, news might tell you, the Jewish people have been worshipping there for far longer. And their temple has been there. And this was a place in which they had been worshipping uh, the God of their ancestors, Yahweh. So there was the profoundness of the, the rituals and the solemn reverence all within this beautiful building, which was intertwined with such rich history. This wasn't just a temple. This was God's dwelling place. These weren't just high priests. They were the lineage of Aaron and, and of Moses. And they were starting to miss some of these things, perhaps, and they were starting to gravitate towards them. And then there was even amongst some, some Jews, not just a, a religious affinity towards symbolism, historically and architecturally, uh, the symbolism that came of that, but for some of the, uh, the, the Jewish people, there was this unhealthy fascination with angels. So actually, if you read some of the scholarly input on this, this period between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we know is the intertestimonial period, that part in between the end of the Old Testament and when Jesus comes, when the Baptist comes. In that sort of period, there is this, uh, if you like, unhealthy fascination with the angels. Now, it doesn't take much digging around to notice that amongst conservative former, uh, formal Christianity, so it doesn't take much uh, to notice that we see some of those uh, issues in our current church landscape today. So, for example, amongst conservative formal Christianity, there are at times an unhealthy attachment to rituals, right, and to buildings, yeah? So it becomes all about buildings, a kick upkeep of buildings, and so on and so on, the church roof and this, that, and everything, yeah? And all of these various religious rituals. But then at the other end, amongst maybe some of the more charismatic circles, there is this unhealthy pursuit of of the supernatural uh, above Jesus. So you can see that whilst these are things mentioned here in the first century, actually it's been continually a problem throughout, throughout the ages. It's not just a first century issue, is it? And the writer back then is aware of these pulls, and as I've said, he's writing in this profoundly uh, pastoral letter, and he calls them to see that despite these, these pulls, the temptation of them, that Jesus is better. Back to that phrase all over again. Jesus is better. And he's saying Jesus is better than Moses. And he's saying that Jesus is better than Joshua. He's saying that Jesus' rest is better than anything this world can offer you. He's saying that Jesus' sacrifice is better than anything that you can give. He is saying that Jesus' covenant is better than anything you may have had before. Jesus is better. Now, uh, in thinking uh, of, of, of this, uh, I think of maybe a, a slightly more trivial example for me, okay? Uh, there was a time in my, my, my youth, which my children remind me daily, I am well past, okay? But back in my 20s, when I got married to Amy at the age of uh, 23, which is nearly 20 years ago now, there was this temptation growing up 
uh, sorry, not good. There was this temptation when uh, I was in my type of an environment, which was like a, uh, a military one, with boasting who could have the biggest dog on the block. Yeah? Not joking. So my mates would go out and they'd borrow these horrible sort of hybrid-looking staffy-type pit bull things. They're like monsters, something from the Incredible Hulk, yeah? They were disgusting. And I thought, well, I can do better than that. I'm going to go out and buy the biggest dog I can find. Amy is petrified of dogs, yeah? So the only way this was going to work out was if I didn't show her the end product, but I show her this cute little puppy, okay? <laughs> now, I showed her this cute little puppy. He went to the farmyard out up in Suffolk Way, from around Nathan's parts, okay? And I took her to see this lovely little dog, little sort of orange dog. It was called, if you don't know, a French Mastiff, a dog de Bordeaux, okay? And if you don't know, you, you will or perhaps have seen the film Turner and Hooch, okay? Imagine Turner and Hooch, but a lot worse, okay? <laughs> so we bought this wonderful little puppy, brought him back. Amy loved him in the, in the beginning, but literally every day we came down, he had both eaten something. He, he ate like a wooden table, okay? He ate all of our shoes, he just ate everything. He drooled everywhere, literally drooled everywhere and all sorts of other things. But the other thing you notice every day when you saw him in the morning was like he doubled in size. And this thing was a monster, okay? He was at his peak about 13 and a half stone and he had a head like an overgrown nuclear sort of medicine ball. He was absolutely massive. He wasn't properly bred. But the point was I had this dog, this 13 and a half stone dog. I called him Conan, okay, for the film buffs amongst you. And we'd just walk around him, round the block. We'd drive around with him in the car. His head would stick out the window and all the dogs were petrified of him. And it was like I would go around saying, my dog is better than yours. Okay, my dog is better. And it doesn't matter what you've got. Your dog, you might think, is the best, but my dog is better. Perhaps a silly illustration to point out to you today that in some ways what the writer to the Hebrews is doing here is boasting that no matter what you may think is the best, no matter what you may think is good, Jesus is better. So, in, in today... Uh, Today, in today's culture, the mantra is, isn't it? I am better. What I have is better. I want better. I can be better. Better, 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 better. That is the mantra of today's society. But the whole point of Hebrews and what I want you to see today is that whatever you may think is good or worth having or fulfilling, and there is a pull from the world out there. There is. Whatever you think will bring you happiness and joy and success in life, okay? Nothing, none of it is compared to knowing or worth having more than Jesus. Nothing is more fulfilling than a relationship, communion with Christ. And I think that particularly we need to hear that again this morning and today, but particularly our young people need to hear it today as they are so tempted by the world and its rotten values that they need to hear once again that Christ is better and your parents or parents are right. Jesus is better. So, pause, think. Whatever career or what, whatever reputation or whatever goods or possessions you're chasing, remember, remember, brothers and sisters, Christ is better. Christ is better. 
Oh, how we need to see this truth again this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to see this truth again, that Christ is better than the thing that dominates my life and my thoughts and my passions and my desire and my lust. Christ is better. Now, the word uh, better and the reason why I keep repeating it this morning is because that is what the writer to Hebrews does. The, The word better in Hebrews, the Greek word, is kriton. Okay, and it appears more times in Hebrews, the letter to Hebrews, than it does in the whole of the New Testament. And its placement here in the first chapter for us this morning to consider is in the context of saying that Jesus, Criton, is better, he's superior to, he's worth having more than the worship and the adoration of angels. Okay, so back to the, remember, the the context and this unhealthy fascination with, or this uh, reverting back to uh, the angels. So what does that mean? Well, hopefully for us today, that's a no-brainer. Of course, Jesus is better than the angels, but I can't say with unwavering confidence that that is true for all Christians, because I've seen it and I've experienced it. I've been with people and pastor people who have had an overstimulated imagination when it comes to angels. And to a degree, it's expected because angels are awesome angelic beings. They're a big deal. They are the ones who gather around God's throne, as we read about in Revelation, and they're worshipping Yahweh. Yeah? They're the ones in all of their glory and all of their splendor and their array and their multicolor and all of it, praising God day and night continually. They are the ones who, when uh, they appear before man, man responds by falling to his knees, trembling. They're awesome beings. Remember also the way by which God has communicated to mankind. It was often through an angelic messenger, through an angel. So think Hagar, or Abraham, or Lot, or Jacob, uh, through, uh, through the dream that's become so familiar to us, or to Joshua, are you uh, with us or against us? Neither, he says, but I'm for for the Lord. Who are you for? Uh, Before Moses in the burning bush. Um, And in many other encounters, leading Israel out uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness. Or before Gideon in the threshing field. Or before Elijah. And so on. And then notice the way in which angels play an important part in God's redemptive plan. As his messages in these key historical events, such as the birth of Jesus Christ and the birth of John the Baptist. So angels have always had a presence in God's redemptive historical uh, plan, and they're awesome beings. And they do make us go, wow. And the first century Jews knew this. Uh, They continued to believe, though, that these uh, awesome angels were the ones who continued to act as God's revelatory messengers. So this opening chapter is not denying what's happened in the past. It's not saying that we shouldn't be in awe of angels, because they are pretty cool. It's saying if you think that angels are awesome, and they are, even still, they are nothing in comparison to King Jesus. Imagine all of the stars in the sky. Yeah, It's it's not that they don't shine brightly it's just that when you look at Jesus he's the brightest of them all and he eclipses them all because he's far greater 
than all of them. So, yes, redemptive history shows us that God is the God who speaks. And he has done that through the voices of angels. But then we pick up, follow with me, verse 1, don't we? So he has done that, says the writer to Hebrews, in many, many times, at many times, and in many ways. Again, think back to how, and we alluded to it last week, how he appears to Abraham in a nightmare, how he comes to Moses through a burning bush, uh, how he appears to Jacob in a dream, Joseph uh, in a pit, speaks to him, Gideon hiding in a field, Ezekiel in a vision. So, so God appears not just through messengers, but directly as well. He communicates through them in some of the ways I've just explained. He comes to his people through prophetic or he's come through to his people through prophetic words, through songs, through poems, through riddles, and through direct conversation. That's what we see in scriptures. In scripture, God has always spoken to his people. So the problem isn't God never speaks. We see through redemptive history, God has always spoken to his people. But the point here is that now in these final days, acknowledging all the different and wonderful ways that God has spoken, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. And that is better, because that is who has dwelt among us. Or as the Apostle John puts it, God's word. The word of God has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the word and the word became flesh. And the way in which he structures this, the writer to Hebrews, is like, again, think back to my dodgy analogy of the dog. It's like he's, he's boasting. It's like he's making this, com- this comparison. He's saying that, yes, God has spoken in the past, but now he's spoken in a much greater way and a better way and a far superior way through Jesus. And the way, again, in which it's stacked together and it's structured, it's like saying, and that is God's final word. That is his final word on the matter. He's spoken to us in all of these ways, but now he's spoken to you through Jesus, and that is enough. That is his final word on all things, in all ways, to us, is Jesus. Nothing more to say. Nothing more to get. The final revelation all lands at King Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is enough. So, Jesus is also, as it says here in the first few verses, is enough. Why? And why is he better than angels? Because he is the Son. And he is the Son through whom he has spoken his word, because he is the word, the Logos. He is better than of old, and he isn't just a messenger or a prophet or someone speaking on God's behalf as an angel or a spokesperson. No, no. He is, verse 2, God's Son. God's Son who has come down to us personally, and therefore, verse 3, as God's Son, he is the Son of the Most High, and he is the heir of all things. Now, to be an heir, to be an heir, not just an heir, I guess in some respects you're all heirs to something. The reason why Jesus is the far greater and the far better heir is because he is the Son of God. He is the heir of all things, And to use this language to be the the heir of something is to use a familiar Jewish language to say that this person has been fully invested in with everything that belongs to the father. 
So Jesus as the heir means that God the Father has invested everything into his son. All things have been given to Jesus. All authority, all power belong to King Jesus. He is the eternal one who has always been present with God, even at creation, it says in verse 2, verse 3, through whom the world was created. He is the heir of all things. Now notice, and again, these are just power phrases stacked one after the other. He's not only the heir of all things because he is the son of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature or of his image. Two things there. The radiance and the exact imprint. First, the radiance. The radiance reminded, when they heard this language, the radiance reminded people of the glory of the God. Remember, the the central uh, point of worship for the Jewish people was the temple. And it wasn't hard for them to think back and think of this radiance in the context of the temple. This was a reference to the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory, the Shekinah was this bright, shining, visible glory that showed the majesty of God. The most visible example we see of this is at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. So Solomon's temple has been built and then they're waiting and it picks up here. It says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, uh, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. That's the Shekinah glory. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, because the the glory of the Lord filled. And it was too much, this glory that fell down on them. So they had to leave and go away. And therefore, it was hidden behind a curtain. Do you remember we looked at this last week, behind the veil? That no one except the great high priest, or sorry, the high priest, once a year could see. The glory was overwhelming, so much so that even Moses, when he asked to see it, was only allowed to see the back of his garment as it passed by from behind a rock as well. It was too much for any human to cope with. It is his wonderful, wondrous glory that has kept us and me, a sinner, separated and away from him. And yet, this is the beauty of what he's saying, and yet in Jesus, he is the radiance of that glory, to whom you can now look upon. In Jesus, you see God's radiance and glory, not in part behind a rock, not in part behind a veil, but God's full glory on display in Jesus Christ. On display. He is God. It's not just that he's like God, he is God. He is God and he is, the second phrase, he is the exact impression, expression of the Father's nature. Now, think that through. No son is exactly like his father, okay? It doesn't take me much to, uh, to, to really hammer home that point. You know, I just go down to Tesco's with, with the kids and with one boy in particular, he shall remain, uh, remain unnamed, okay? He's four years old. <laughs> Okay, you go around with him, okay, and he's shouting, gobbing off, chasing things, okay, and it's just like, that is not nothing, that's, he's not mine, he is nothing like me, okay, just let, let him be someone else's problem, okay, so, so not every child, okay, fully models or is the exact imprint of their father, because I don't do anything like that, and I never did, 
All right? And my mum's not here to argue otherwise. But Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father. The exact imprint, the, the, the image, imagery here is one of, um, of coinage. And so on the coins in first century uh, Palestine, you would have a picture of, of Caesar on it. And they'd get that by stamps and they would all near enough come out the same like we have on our coins. That's the imagery that we've got here. Jesus is the exact image of God the Father because he is God. So much so that he can say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement for us when we pray to our Father in heaven that everything we see about Jesus and his earthly life and his earthly ministry shows us what God is like. And maybe for some of us we have this sort of warped, unfriendly, unwarm understanding of what God is like. We see him as some sort of a tyrant, an angry tyrant, or someone that's not happy or pleased or always telling people off. But when we come to the Gospels, and we see the, the loving kindness and the grace of Jesus who went out of his way to go to the marginalised and the outcast and the leper and those that are on the periphery of society. That shows you exactly what God is like. Exactly. So he is both the radiance and he is the exact imprint of God because he is God. And as God, he not only radiates and imitates, but he demonstrates he not only is, he does. So pick up verse 3b. He upholds and sustains all things by the power of his word. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That's the Gospel of John. And it's saying exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. All things through Jesus all things by Jesus, all things are upheld and sustained by King Jesus. So not only does he do these things as, as God, not only do all things come into being through God, but all things uh, that have been brought into existence are sustained by the Son too. That's you. That's you. Jesus sustains you. What he has called, he sustains. Absolutely, 100% faithful to you, Jesus sustains you. He who calls you, he will strengthen you and he will sustain you if you trust him and look to him and by faith believe in him. But notice also how the writer is so rich it's like a tapestry it's, it's, it's hard but we're going to keep like a pick and mix picking out bits from the text notice how now the writer attributes these titles the heir of all things the son of God the sustainer the radiance the imprint he attributes all of these titles to something that has happened uh, prior oh, sorry he's, he, so he, he attributes these things so pick up verse 3b it says to, to his title which says after he had provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven so, so it's saying that 
he became these things after the atonement, after the atoning work of the cross. Do you see it? So he, he becomes these things. So that implies that he wasn't these things before. So what does that mean? Because that's a little bit confusing. So notice the phrase that Jesus has become more superior to angels, which would imply that prior he wasn't. How can Jesus be God and yet be at some stage lesser than the angels to then once again become better than them? What does that mean? And the answer is that Jesus, the eternal son of God and second member of the Godhead, has and always has been the king of glory and far superior to angels. But at the right time, to the right place, during his coming in the flesh, his incarnation, he empties himself and becomes like us and thus is made a little lower than the angels until his glorious resurrection and his ascension and the task is complete and he goes up to God and once again becomes what he always was. Isn't that wonderful? The, the, the wonderful beauty of the incarnation that Christ gives all of that up for us, makes himself lowly, comes to earth, but then the writer to Hebrews is reminding us that not now. Now he's ascended. He is given it all back. He is the king of kings, the king of glory. All authority has now been given to him. So that, again, is summarized if you flick forward to Hebrews 2.9 a bit later, which summarizes, but we do see Jesus, who was, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now he is crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. So, first Hebrews talk, the supremacy of Christ. Christ is better. Church, leave out of here. Okay, forget everything. Know this. Christ is better. I choose Christ. He's better than the angels of the context here. Better than angels. Okay, so in applying this all, because I know that probably most of you don't even think about angels unless you're singing it after a a Lambrini or whatever and, or, and a karaoke and you're singing Robbie Williams song okay so you don't think about angels at all okay so how do we apply this then what are we to make of it I'm assuming that most of you do agree that Jesus is greater than the angels but so, so what do we see here how do we apply this to our hearts let me give you some of my observations namely one and this is not exhaustive namely one that our God is the God who speaks to his people our God speaks to his people. He speaks. He has spoken to his people in significant ways in the Old Testament, but his final word is in Jesus. And all that we need and all that you need to instruct you in life and keep you on the right path is to be found in Jesus and in his word. It is enough. It is enough. And that might be a hard word in a tough season for some of us, but it is, it is enough. He is enough. His word is enough. Build on it. Let it govern your life, church. Let it govern your life. Let it govern your plans. May it inform your plans. May it teach you your ways. Trust in it. Trust in it through the valleys. But don't forget it on the mountaintops. Teach others it. Teach the next generations it. 
obey it. God has spoken to us and shown us who he is in Christ. In Jesus, we see the character and the exact likeness of God, and it's all found in his glorious word. Let's not negate this wonderful, wonderful word given to us. Second point, Hebrews 1 shows us, what it shows us is that it should impact the way we view Jesus. It should change the way we view him, who he is. That Jesus is, is God. He is the high and lifted one. He is the great king of heaven who radiates the glory of God because he, exi- he is the exact image of God. And yet it shows us something of his character, of the, of the Godhead, that he lays aside his majesty, he empties himself, becomes lower than the angels for a while to become man, to suffer and die out of love for you and I. As you wonder at the marvel of the incarnation that Jesus would do that for you and that Jesus would do that for me, the King of heaven, the King of glory becomes so low. Why does he become so low? So that you could be lifted up. He became low so that he could take your sin and the wrath of the Father. He endures your hell because of the Father's great love for you. He loves you. That's the lens through which we read this. It comes lower than the angels. Out of love for you. That's how loved you are. So, thirdly, third, what I see is, is positionally where he is now. Positionally where he is now. So, two of your, if you're um, taking notes, was that he shows us how we should view Jesus. Third, is that we see positionally where the one who died for me now is. Yeah? We've looked at the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. We've considered his earthly ministries. We looked at the cross. We've remembered the resurrection on that glorious day we had on Easter Sunday. But now we remind ourselves, as was the illustration with the sword, that he is now in heaven in glory. Okay? And he is coming back, not this time as meek and mild Jesus in a, in a manger, but as mighty warrior king with a sword strapped to his thigh on a horse to judge the living and the dead. He is now on the throne, all authority given to him. He is seated, he is made better and more superior than the angels, all authority given to him, and a name above all names has been given to him. And in that place of authority and power, because of his great love for you, he continues to speak to us through his word and by his Holy Spirit. And it's through the word and by the Holy Spirit and with the help of his ministering angels who help us still now that he continues to speak and he continues to sustain his people and uphold them by the power of his word. Positionally, I see now Christ is on the throne and if Christ is for me and if Christ so died for me and shed his blood for me and now he is with all authority and power, he's upholding me and he's upholding and sustaining his church and you here today. Those he calls, he sustains. In fact, the whole world is sustained through his powerful word. But where does that, all of these these three points, just three points, where does that, where does showing us these things lead you to a child of God? Where does it lead you to? How does it make you respond? And the answer is surely to worship. 
to worship. Oh my God, I'm, 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 why? Why? Or in the words of King David, who, who am I that you are mindful of me? It doesn't make sense that you've done that for me. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing? And as the Gospels are fundamentally asking us, who is Jesus? And signposting us to him as the glorious son of God, worthy of all praise and adoration and glory. So now the writer of Hebrews would point you to see that Jesus is better. Besides, no angel, no prophet, no wife, no husband, no career, no celebrity role model, no other religion, no other philosophy, no other name under heaven can be compared to King Jesus. Who else would give it all up, empty himself and shed his blood to save you and I? Who else other than King Jesus? And that is precisely what he has done for you. In summary, chapter 1, he is the Son of God. He is the revelation of God. He is the fulfilment of God's revelation in the Scriptures, the Old Testament. He's the heir of all things. He's the one through whom all things are created. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact impression of God's nature. He is the preserver of all things and he is the sustainer and he is the mediator of God's people. And that is exactly why he is better and so worthy of your praise and my praise today. Do you see him as better this morning, church? Do you see him as better? Do you see him as greater, far superior. And the reality is, we, we do need God's help with these things. We do need his spirit. And so shall we take the opportunity now to pray and ask him to do just that, that we would see him as better. Church, I, I, I don't want to overbake this, but I wonder if, um, as I introduce the, uh, the uh, sorry, we're not praying just yet, I should say that, but you can focus if you like, because I'm asking you to be, to be honest and to maybe inwardly consider a few things. So I, I asked at the very beginning, or I said at the very beginning, that uh, the reason why the writer to Hebrews wrote this letter was to, to remind people who gravitated away to be reminded that Jesus is, is better. He's the greatest treasure. Come back to him. Remember the goodness of the gospel. And maybe you find yourself in a similar position here this morning because other things have become greater in your life. And some of those things might not inherently be bad. They could be a healthy career, ambition. They could be family. It could be, you know, whatever else, making a few dollars or reputation or whatever it is. But you recognize that these things have become greater than knowing Christ. Yeah? They've become greater than, and they, they cannot. It's sin. It, they cannot. Christ must be greater than all things. He must be first. He is preeminent, as Colossians says. So let's pray and ask for his help with that. Our Lord and Master, you have created us to know you, to love you and to worship you. You have opened our eyes to behold your glory. You have shown us your Son, Jesus, 
through whom we have been saved. And we are so thankful that you have saved us. It doesn't make sense that you would forgive the unforgivable. But it's all because of your great grace and love. And we can just respond, only respond by faith and say thank you. But Lord, we, we do recognise and confess that we very quickly gravitate away and the busyness and the allure of the world crowds out the name of Jesus and his rightful place as number one, as better than all things in our lives. And so, Lord, we just want to come to you now at the beginning of our series and pray that you would teach us for your name's sake and because of your great love to us, that you would teach us what it means to be better than all things in our heart. This is what we decide and this is what we choose here today. Holy Spirit, help us. Make much of Christ in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. Be our focus. Be our chief desire. Help us, we pray. And Lord, I pray for anyone struggling with this right now. That, Lord, you will shine your light. You will break through and show them that you are the one who sustains out of your great love and has us. Teach us, Lord. Be better than we pray. In your good name. Amen. So, now, as Jamie said... Let's respond in worship of the Lord Jesus. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk